movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 235 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the fissile isotope episode of the SLS cast because it turns out that there is a fissile isotope of uranium that was used in the first atomic bombs and the fissile isotope in question would be none other than U-235 and with that wonderful little bit of uranium knowledge I of course am mad and coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee Tim, so does that mean that you 2 the band, is missing three and five? Is their name a typo? Um, it's entirely possible. If the band itself is capable of sustaining a nuclear fission chain reaction, then yes, perhaps maybe they are missing two, the, the three and the five. If a band could withstand a nuclear fusion, did you say fusion? Fission. Fission, fission, fission. chain? Fission chain reaction, yes. I think that's what's keeping the Rolling Stones alive. I think they're constantly stuck <laughs> in a in a nuclear fission chain. It's entirely possible. So how the hell are you, sir? I'm uh, recovering from our day at Universal Studios Hollywood yesterday, and it's been like my third or fourth time I've been. But I would say about four times I've been. The first time I've been there was about a, uh, 10 years or so ago, maybe a little over 10 years ago. And I went earlier this year, had like the little neighborhood pass thing, so I was able to come back for free. Took the significant other this time, and uh, leaving the park, I felt pretty confident in saying that if I never came back to Universal Studios in another 10 or 15 years, I think I'd be fine with that. I I don't think I'd be missing out too much, because Universal Studios isn't quite like Disneyland, you know, like Disneyland or Disney World. I I assume I've never been to Disneyland, but I, I know you have. They put a lot of thought into the park. Wait, Disney World? Wait, hang on. D- you've never been to Disneyland or Disney World? Disney World. I've only been to Disneyland. Okay. Yeah. Very good. Okay. But even with like Disneyland, they put a lot of thought. There's a lot of nuance to the park. There's a lot of charm to it. And when you go to Disneyland, and I assume Disney World also, you don't feel like you're completely getting ripped off every time you go. It's like Disney knows how to put their customer down easily. They know you're chilling out all this money, so they're going to make the best of it, I suppose. Universal, it's like, they finally got a main attraction at their park, which is the Harry Potter, Wizarding World of Harry Potter Land, which is cool, but there's only one ride in the entire park, and they're they're trying desperately to capitalize off of it, and trying so hard to get the rest of the park built so they can actually have more going for it. Have you ever been to a Universal theme park, like the one in uh, Orlando? I have not. Really? Well, I, you know, I think it might be worth checking out if you want to go somewhere a little bit cheaper, I guess. Well, hey, I mean, if nothing else, you can always remember that at Universal, they have pay-to-play. So if you're willing to shell out the bucks, you can actually pay to always be first on all the rides. So you never have to ride, you never have to wait in a line. And Universal was also the, uh, on the forefront of making sure that fat people don't go to their parks. So you also have that. If you're uh, someone who is, you know, desperately uh, afraid or incensed by by people who are fat, then fear not. 
go to Universal Studios because they have designed most of their rides and especially all of the new rides so that fat people can't be on them. And it's been so successful at Universal that uh, Disney has picked up on it and now fat people can't ride the new Avatar ride. The flying one, not the boat one. The boat one is, you know, that, that, that's, that, see, that's how they're, that's how they're kind of, uh, you know, mixing them. Oh, are you too fat for the cool ride? Here, take the lame ride over here. Yeah. Don't worry. That still takes fat <laughs> Go on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> you are a boat. Go on a boat. Well, I mean, that's one thing that I was, the, me and the SO were kind of, in a, in a way, bitching about. If you go to a theme park for the first time, it's usually pretty cool. And especially with Universal, where you have, it's movie oriented. You have all the movie rides. You have the Jurassic Park water adventure ride, which is a lot of fun. My issue is, are the designs of the new ride. All of them now, you have to put on 3D glasses. You're, you're staring at a screen. And the issue with these rides is that they're pretty short. So automatically, you, you have to get thrown right into the action. Like, there's no buildup to it. That's what I like about the Jurassic Park boat ride, is that it's about six or seven minutes long. You're in a raft. And the entire ride, like the beginning of the ride, starts off as if you're on a regular Jurassic Park Jungle Cruise ride until there's an issue, there's like a technical malfunction, and all of a sudden you're not going into the appropriate little little waterway that you're supposed to. Instead, your raft like ventures off into the danger zone. That stuff is fun, but now it's just... I mean, you sit down, put on the stuff, and all of a sudden you're being jerked around, and you're in the middle of this big action sequence with a Transformer, and, you know, Harry, oh shit, you're in the Harry Potter ride, and all of a sudden you're in a Quidditch match, then all of a sudden you're you're dealing with Dementors, and all of a sudden you're dealing with spiders, then all of a sudden there's the big old tree that's, like, doing, you know, like my movies, I like a, I like a little bit of nuance, I guess, and that is exactly what I appreciate about Disney. I will say this, Disney definitely goes the extra mile, and that's the thing, is that while they don't have a whole lot in the thrill ride department, which is where Universal uh, and Sea Sea World and Bush Gardens and stuff like that, that's kind of where they excel. Outside of the Wizarding World, Harry Potter, yeah, there's no there's no one who can you know suck you into a story like Disney can. So you know, but uh, long story short, I do want to see the Harry Potter stuff, so uh, I will eventually get over to Universal and see the Harry Potter stuff, but probably not for. A few more years yet. Yeah. I did witness something very interesting at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. There was this guy, a full-grown man, who was spread eagle in front of the urinal, both hands up against the wall, and taking a leak that way, as if he was, like, getting frisked by somebody that nobody else could see other than him. And it wasn't until I was taking a pee right next to him when he decided, oh, wait, maybe I should change the way I'm I'm standing. I don't know. Have you ever heard of any weird medical condition that would cause you to need a pee in such a way? Um have you ever seen anybody pee in a, in the most ridiculous way that you can share with us? No nope. But no. I can't think of anything that would cause you to want to do that other than like being four and not quite get having the hang of it yet. That would be about the only thing I can think of. I know I look funny when I pee. I, when I'm at the urinal, I I drop my underwear and my pants down to my ankles. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I quit doing that last year. 
Awesome, awesome. So, <laughs> are you ready to look in the old mail sack, sir? Check that sack. Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack like you should. All right, well, you know, now that the kids have all died down, we can tell you that there's nothing in there. We have a, you know, we had a bunch of uh, Twitter followers that uh, followed us again. So, as always, thank you for all of the new Twitter followers. Um, but uh, no emails this week. But we are always ready and willing to read those emails. So, if you'd like to reach out to us via email, please do so by sending an email to the show at slscast.com. Uh, and of course, if you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that by following us at the SLS cast. So I think we should just jump right into the news. What do you say, sir? Let's do it. Here we go, folks. It's the news. And first up for me, um, I would like to read this techdirt.com article, um, and it comes to us by way of Mike Masnick. Um, this is uh, from, it's a, about a week or so old. Uh, let's see here. Yeah, it, it's literally a week and a half old. Comes to us uh, Friday, May 26th, but... It's still a very, very interesting article, and I like its kind of tongue-in-cheek title which is piracy killing hollywood so bad that disney made more money in 2016 than any studio ever the byline here says from the must be because of the mickey mouse copyright department remember to hear the MPAA tell it, piracy is really killing the movie industry. It's been whining about piracy for basically uh, our entire lifetime, it seems, and uh, constantly predicting its own demise if something is not done. And despite the fact that Congress has repeatedly obliged Hollywood in ratcheting up copyright anti-piracy laws, and despite the fact that the MPA has been clearly wrong repeatedly, such that the new technologies it feared actually helped expand Hollywood's business, the studios continue to push for awful changes to copyright law, citing the horrors of privacy, the uh, privacy, the horrors of piracy. And yet, now it's coming out that Disney not only had a good year last year, it had the best year ever for a movie studio. Not surprisingly, Disney put out its own glowing press release over this. Here we go. And the, and the, and, and it says, quote, the Walt Disney Studios will become the first studio ever to reach the $7 billion threshold at the global box office, setting a new industry record with a powerful $290 million global debut for Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. Disney's year-to-date grosses are $6,988,000,000 from January 1st through December 18th, 2016. Including 2.7 billion, uh, domestically and also an industry record and 4.2 billion internationally, a Disney record. 
These phenomenal box office results are driven by films from Disney, Walt Disney Animation Studios, Pixar Animation Studios, Marvel Studios, and Lucasfilm, representing the first time that all five of these world-class brands have released films in the same calendar year. And I'm going to end the quote there. Now, it's a pretty short article. That was about half of it. I encourage you to read the other half. Uh, Tim, thoughts? Well, like... Who didn't see this coming? Like, <laughs> how many animated Disney movies came out last year? At I least mean, two. The, well, there it was, was Moana and uh, and, and uh, the other one. Yeah, the one that actually got the stupid uh, Zootopia. Oh, Zootopia. Yeah. yeah. So both of those made at least a hundred million dollars apiece domestically, and I'm sure they're both killing it on Blu-ray right now and on on digital downloads and all that shit. And then on top of that, you got Star Wars. I mean, they have all the hot properties. I think going forward, if we really want to see some growth, I think it's about time we we take Disney out of this category, and Disney is now its own thing. I think we should just stop counting Disney money, and it, like like it's it's its own thing. It's its own deal that's going on. It's like it's like the Scientology of movie studios. We know up until about five six years ago, we've always known it was there. But we've kind of given it its space and just let it do its own thing. Why? Because it's not going anywhere. It's always going to be there. So good for them. I mean, they're the only studio that's consistently putting out the material, the product that people, consumers as a whole, want to go and see. And it's not just Disney also. I mean, it's Universal with Fast and the Furious. I mean, they hit it big with that movie. But if you think about it, without Fast and the Furious and, say, Jurassic Park... I'm I'm struggling to think of other properties that Universal has. I know they're sure. really pulling for like their monster movies, their, their dark Universal. Did they do? Did they do that monster trucks movie? <laughs> oh shit! You know, maybe I don't know. That could have been Warner Brothers, and that's another studio that's uh. having a hard time. Hopefully, at, at least I liked Wonder Woman. I, I know you didn't. I don't know if you. Uh, how much you liked it or didn't like it, but I'm hoping that is a sign of a of a change, like a change in the in the current for Warner Brothers. And again, I mean, I know that we're talking about Disney, but it's just Disney's always going to be there. I think once they had their 1980s, like late 70s, early to mid 80s slump with their quality of films and the lack of box office results, they're not going to make that mistake again. You know, they also hit a little tiny slump in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then Pixar kind of picked them up a bit. So, right. I don't know, I think they're going to keep going strong for a while. I think they're going to keep buying properties, and yeah, I don't know. Like, what do, what do you think? What do you think about all this? It's not surprising. I just, th- I do think it's hilarious, though, that we keep hearing, oh, God, piracy, 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 and yet... I really think this puts the nail in the coffin on piracy. Not that it doesn't exist, but that it's not the problem they want it to be. The fear-mongering at this point is going to backfire, uh, if it hasn't already. And if they're not careful, it might end up promoting piracy because they're like, well, shit, man, if they're making seven, if one company is making seven billion dollars just by themselves, I guess it's not going to, I guess it don't matter. I can pirate it. I mean, that's going to be the attitude. So hopefully they'll shut up about it and uh, we'll see where it goes from here. Yeah. And I know we didn't talk about this before, but did you hear about the piracy pirates who were holding uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's 
scrotum the <laughs> yeah i yeah i think you mentioned that last week yeah where it was between it was that and i think it was warner brothers also like they were saying that if you don't do something we're gonna continue and we're gonna do a better job at releasing all of these brand new movies to crumble your company or something like that i'm sure there was more r's and mateys in there but that really didn't do anything because the only, and I know this because after I read that article and after I went to go see Pirates of the Caribbean, I thought, surely this movie has got to be like piracy gold. Like, I'm sure people are pirating the shit out of this movie. No, in fact, after reading up on it, the only Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man Tell No Tells or whatever, was a really shitty Russian copy that was handheld shitty camera and it was all in Russian. So with it being all in Russian, that's really not going to help anybody out. I think Disney is is one of the top companies that is, are really on the ball with watching out for piracy. And for those of you who keep up on that stuff, you can, it, I mean, it's like night and day. You can tell who's on the ball, which studio is on the ball, and which studio is not on the ball. It's all up to the the companies that actually care about it and are willing to take the time to actually monitor piracy also only time will tell (laughs) what do you got for us sir all right first up this is the super secret news that i i want to surprise you with it's an announcement of sorts what could it possibly be what do you think it is it's something that i've talked about multiple times before and we we've discussed it multiple times before over the past six years seven years now so uh, do, do you have any ideas of what it could pertain to? It's very um, good news. I'll say that. Oh, I was, well, I don't know. Uh, um, let's see. Lots of things we've talked about over the years. We've talked about Fifty Shades of Grey a lot. We've talked about um, various forms of fashions of penises, penile issues, and porn. Uh, we've also talked a lot of Lars von Trier, whether or not we, you know, were in agreement on it or not. We've definitely talked about it a lot. And... I'll just read the article. (laughs) (laughs) Via the playlist.net. Hollywood. Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, I know. I know what it is. I know what it is. I forgot. I forgot. The the movie that we never thought would get made finished filming. Terry Gilliam has been filming on The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. (laughs) This year, again, it's uh, via the playlist.net, written by Rodrigo Perez. Published on June 4th of this year, obviously, it says this, quote, It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing hallelujah, end quote. Yep, rejoice. After years of tilting windmills, nearly killing himself and possibly making him go utterly mad in the process, filmmaker Terry Gilliam has finally wrapped production on his long, long Long in the works, elusive holy grail project of the man who killed Don Quixote. Quote, sorry for the long silence. I've been busy packing the truck and now heading home. And quote, he wrote on Facebook today, quote, after 17 years, we have completed the shoot of the man who killed Don Quixote. Muchas gracias to all the team and believers. Quixote vive. End quote. Quote, the man who killed Don Quixote. 
Uh, that's not a quote, that's just a title. The Man Who Killed Don Quixote stars Adam Driver as the main character Toby, Jonathan Price as Don Quixote himself, and includes Olga Kurlinko and Stellan Skarsgård among the many local actors from the shoot in Spain. The once ill-fated Don Quixote had been the albatross around Gilliam's neck for more than a decade. As his Facebook post notes, Gilliam had been trying to make the film for 17 years, and the disastrous initial production starring Johnny Depp was painfully chronicled in the warts and all documentary Lost in La Mancha in 2002. Over the years, several incarnations almost came to fruition that starred the likes of Robert Duvall, Ewan McGregor, and John Hurt. Funding always seemed to collapse at the last minute, and even this current version, funded by the cash-heavy Amazon Studios, had its issues too. But finally, Coyote's shoot had finished, and now Gilliam will go into post-production. The director, presumably, is in no rush and wants to get it right. Hopefully, we'll see the picture sometime in 2018, but who knows? End all quotes there. Yeah, I sure as shit hope he takes his time. And I sure as shit, if he needs fucking reshoots, Amazon Studios better give the man fucking reshoots. I don't know if this sounds stupid or not, but I'm I'm excited, and I'm really excited for Terry Gilliam, and proud of him, in a way, because he's been very resilient in trying to get this movie made. And if there's any director that I've been trying to pull for so much to make his dream project is Terry Gilliam, because I really like Terry Gilliam, and I really like his movies. Granted, it's been hit or miss lately. But when they're good, I think they're really, really good and very unique. I think he's still a very unique filmmaker. So I'm down for any new Terry Gilliam uh, because the, he still he still has it. You know, he, he still got it in him. Whenever this movie comes out, whether it's in 2018, 2019, 2020, we should dedicate an entire episode just to the man who killed Don Quixote because by God, it deserves it. It deserves it. Matthew, what do you think about this? Good news, I hope. Hey, you know what? I think that if the pace of filmmaking is any indication, I believe that we will see this movie within the next 20 years. <laughs> and that that's and and you know, we can definitely look into the celebratory aspects of that episode no seriously um i i truly am glad that he got to that he actually got it done i know it 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 really has been like 17 years that he's been working on this thing and the filming is complete and now it's all post-production work um but i i fear that this is for gilliam this is going to turn into um his swan song as it as it were uh and not because and i don't think intentionally so but i think that with just everything that it took to get this done and all of the setbacks and all of the heartache and um and 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 every single you know inch that he's had to to, to claw his way forward in this project over the years that he knows he's starting to realize you know that yes the lights at the end of the tunnel but so is the pressure that this has to be good the pressure that this has been worth the effort and i think that's why he is hedging with you know oh it's going to take the time it's going to take you know uh and and everything else um and so i think that 
as it goes forward, especially if it gets to the point where there is a screening, uh, if that screening doesn't go well, reshoots be damned. I think that, um, I, I think it'll hurt the chance of it ever seeing the light of day. Um, but, but I truly, I truly wish the best for him. I do hope it comes out because after all this build up, God damn it, we better see something. Yeah. Well, I know he is making this movie for himself. Uh, I don't know if that's always been his intention. I know this was his passion project. So I guess with any passion project, you mostly do it for yourself because it's something you've been striving towards. So I think because of that, it might be good. But you're right. We will see. But I do want to knock out these two news pieces real quick because I I think these are kind of fluffy, fluffy news pieces right here. Dan Aykroyd via Yahoo News. Dan Aykroyd blames director Paul Feig for Ghostbusters reboot, It Costs Too Much. It's written by David Hayes. Uh, And this is actually via Deadline.com, but it's on Yahoo Movies. Okay, so the original post that Yahoo posted, it said that Paul Feig, who directed last year's Ghostbusters reboot, quote, will not be back on the Sony lot anytime soon, and quote, actor and star of the original Dan Aykroyd told Britain's Channel 4 on Sunday. The director made several decisions that caused the movie to lose money, Aykroyd asserted on the Sunday Brunch show, adding that its struggles had nothing to do with the gender-inverted casting or the ensemble's performances. One of the main stars and a co-writer of the 1984 original, Aykroyd got an executive producer title on the reboot. He said that, quote, The girls are great in it. Kate McKinnon, Melissa McCarthy, Kristen Wiig. What wonderful, wonderful players they are in Leslie Jones. I was really happy with the movie, but it just cost too much. And Sony does not like to lose money. They don't. It made a lot of money around the world, but just cost too much, making it economically not feasible to do another one, so that's too bad, end quote. Without even being asked to elaborate, Aykroyd went on to pin the losses on Fig. quote, the director, he spent too much money on it. He didn't shoot scenes we suggested to him and several scenes that were going to be needed, And he said, nah, we don't need them. Then we tested the movie, and they needed them, and he had to go back. About 30 to $40 million in reshoots. So he will not be back on the Sony lot anytime soon. In quote there, the film, which reportedly cost more than $140 million to make, grossed just $229.1 million worldwide. Uh, Yet there is an update to all of this, and this will close out this article. Sony Pictures has refused... Dan Aykroyd's version of events saying that the reshoots he referred to actually cost between $3 million and $4 million, and not the $30 million to $40 million Aykroyd described on Britain's Channel 4 earlier. End all quotes there. Would you want to see a sequel to the current iteration or the last iteration of Ghostbusters with Kate McKinnon and Kristen Wiig and all of them? Or are you okay with it just dying out there? Because if, personally, if they're going to do a sequel, which I'm okay with the ladies, I mean, I, I, I think the, the biggest problem with the movie was its script and the dialogue, and I thought the director was a very poor choice. So I think if they brought in a different creative team and did something else with it, it could possibly work and be significantly better than the other one. But this is coming from somebody who wasn't too thrilled with Paul Figg's Ghostbusters. So uh, what, what do you think about this, Matt? No, I just let it die. Let it die. Let it die. I mean, seriously, I just... Um, well, I, I think maybe Aykroyd has the numbers wrong. 
Um, but I would definitely be inclined to agree with uh, at least Aykroyd's line of thinking. Um, and, and the only problem is that Aykroyd cares too much. Um, he he he's on the he's on the other side of the pendulum where um, he is so concerned with the state of how it should be that he's that he's not willing to let the spirit carry through in things the way that in, in, in the way that things are um and yet at the same time i agree this was uh, uh this vehicle was um not anywhere um as good as it should have been but also to be fair Let's see here, going back a little bit. Um, I gave it a 2.25. Tim, you gave it a 2.75. So, I mean... Really? I could have sworn you you didn't give it more than a 2.25? I did not. Really? It's not a... Yeah, it's... Um, it's not the worst movie I've ever seen. And until you um, watch the director's cut, and unfortunately, I I sat through all two hours and fifteen minutes of that director's cut a few months back, and oh, there's a director's cut. Oh, it's awful. It is so so bad. And that's that's Fag's <laughs> uh, preferred version of the movie, and it's fucking awful. But no, I mean it, it's. I, I I think that uh they, they really and truly should just let it go. It it didn't it didn't do what it was supposed to do. They went about it completely wrong. Um they they paid for it. Um and they can blame whoever they want to blame, but the simple fact of the matter is that they didn't put forward uh they didn't put forward a good movie. Um they didn't put forward a terrible movie. And it is definitely not like the shittiest movie of all time or anything like that. Um and we both conceded clearly that there were breaths of life in that movie that were good. Uh, again, I was a big fan of Kate McKinnon in this movie. But um, um, I, I don't know. I just uh, I'm I'm fine with just letting it die. Let it die. Let it die. Going back to Reddit, our amazing user mi hyphen sixteen evil over at Reddit. Uh, he is one of the moderators. Um, of the news, oh, I'm sorry, the news, the movies subreddit, and he has another box office week for you. Again, the numbers come from Box Office Mojo, so they are legit numbers. It says here that Wonder Woman smashes predictions, opening at number one, uh, and setting multiple opening weekend records for a female director. Meanwhile, Captain Underpants, the first epic movie, opens to a week number two. Let's see here. Uh, so yeah, Wonder Woman had a, a worldwide gross of 223 million. Captain Underpants, uh, 24 million. And then, uh, let's see here. That's the worldwide cube. Their, uh, domestic weekend gross. So I guess if you care, that's 103 million here, uh, for Wonder Woman and 23 and a half million for Captain Underpants. Pirates of the Caribbean was at 21 million. Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 was, uh, just under 10 million. And Baywatch came in at eight and a half million. 
So uh, MI16Evil-16Evil hyphen Evil writes, So I think it's safe to say that in a lot of ways, the box office performance of Wonder Woman is deeply important to many people in both the industry and the general public. So I have a lot of elements to this story to cover. But spoiler alert, almost all of them are fantastic news. So first off, the numbers. The film opened at number one with $100.5 million, 103 0.1 million domestic and 223 million worldwide. As mentioned above, one of the big elements of this film is that it is the first theatrical film from acclaimed director Patty Jenkins in 13 years. And as a female director in charge of this massive film, it means she just broke pretty much every conceivable opening record for a female director. Those records include biggest opening previews, biggest Friday, and biggest overall weekend. It also had the highest worldwide opening ever for a female director and the biggest opening in China for a female director as well. So yes, an unbelievable performance on that level, but where it completely demolished was in comparison with other female superhero films, where, let's face it, the competition was laughable. The highest opening weekend for a female superhero before this was Catwoman. <laughs> Box Office Mojo lists Ghost in the Shell as a superhero film, so therefore it had the highest opening for a female-led superhero movie, which I just personally disagree with completely which opened with $16.7 million. In fact, Wonder Woman almost made more than the entire lifetime domestic gross of Catwoman in just its opening day. Yeah, moving on. So tons and tons and tons of good news about uh, the Wonder Woman stuff. And, and I don't think that that's necessarily any real surprise, mainly because it's not... And I don't like necessarily that they're focusing so heavily on, oh, it's a female director. Oh, it's a, because while it is an important milestone, I think that it speaks to the ability of a good director to make a good movie. And Patty Jenkins has demonstrated that she understands the character and she understands the story that's being told. I don't think that that would have been impossible from a guy's perspective, but I am very, very glad that it was demonstrated from, you know, from a female perspective because it's, it's, it is, it's kind of like a catch 22. It's like, if you don't focus on the fact that it's a female, then there's not as much empowerment and you need an example. But at the same time, you know, where do we draw the line in just blending together? Hey, it's a good director. So I don't know. I guess I have to, I guess I have to modify my previous statement. Yeah, let's focus on it. You know, let's, let's just take the win. It's definitely good all the way around. But I don't know. Captain Underpants came out. Now I was never a big fan of this. I, I, this is, we are now entering the era of stuff I have no idea about. I remember that this stuff was big, you know, 10 years ago or something for kids. Like it was a kid's thing, but I didn't have my daughters 10 years ago. So DreamWorks is still trying stuff, I guess. It had a budget of 38 million and its opening weekend was 25 million. So not really all that great. In terms of, you know, huge opening, but you're opening up against Wonder Woman, so there's that. But with a budget of less than $40 million, they can say that they did great. Right, but even still, I would say that, you know, so, okay, so we got $38 million budget for Captain Underpants. Um, you know, we'll use our standard rule of thumb, so say 76, all in. But you've literally made 30% of your money. Uh, your break-even money in the opening weekend, I think you've got a good chance of ultimately making a few bucks on this one. So I don't definitely, I don't think this is a loss for DreamWorks, but well, I mean, I guess, where, where, what do you think, Tim? At the end of the day, 
focusing so heavily on female director and female this and female look at all this this box office records female smash you know and everything is it too much or I guess, how much do we need to say, God damn it, she's just a great director. It's not that she's a she. Where do, where do we cross the line? Or is there a line that's going to be getting crossed in saying that being a woman is what made the difference? Or, hey, these records are important because it's being a woman. Or is there part and parcel of the celebration, but at the same time we say, God damn it, Making a good movie is what's important here. Well, there's always going to be a line, whether it's going to be man or woman, the type of man, the type of woman, race. It's going to be about ethnicity. It's all. It's it's always going to be something, and, and not necessarily just about race or ethnicity or anything like that. There's there's always going to be a line, especially uh, nowadays. It's just become such a big deal, and. In most cases, it should definitely, like, it warrants it being a, a big deal. And I'm very happy that Patty Jenkins made this movie. I don't know if she called all the shots or what, based on what I've read, especially these interviews that she's given. She had, a, I mean, she had a lot to do with this movie, like the direction that it was going to go towards. She helped guide the movie. In fact, before she took this movie, she was originally supposed to do Thor Ragnarok. And I think she signed on to do Thor Ragnarok, but decided, you know, I, I, she didn't. She probably didn't want to deal with Marvel because I think Marvel is still very hands-on with all their directors, especially if they're the first-time directors. And if you're not James Gunn or Joss Whedon, I'm sure they're still very hands-on. And so, if it's because of her, the reason why this movie turned out, in my opinion, so good, then I'm happy for it because there were definitely aspects of it that I did not like that annoyed the shit out of me. But there was a lot of stuff that got me very excited. Again, if, if she's the one that did it, then that's great. And I'm I'm happy for I don't I'm kinda like going around in circles. I think I've I lost <laughs> the meaning of what you asked me. Okay, so the line in the sand. When it comes down to it, there's always going to be a line in the sand. I think what annoys me the most is people saying that they're forecasting that Wonder Woman's box office is going to be lower than all of the other Wonder Woman movies. Are you saying that because it's being helmed by Patty Jenkins and not by Zack Snyder? Because I think she has a better rep than Zack Snyder. So if you think Zack Snyder's superhero movie is going to do so well, why don't you just expect her movie to do so well? And is Wonder Woman seriously that much of an obscure property to doubt its box office intake? Because... Even months ago, people were excited to see this movie. So I, I think that's really what annoyed me the most and does continue to annoy me the most is when people downplay the box office when they really have no reason to. And I think that's kind of where I see a, a problem in a way, as well as with there having to always be a line in the sand. You're either for it, against it, either because of this or because of that. Again, the race, uh, uh, sexuality, all this stuff. Or the sex or all this stuff. Genderism, I suppose. But I, I think a lot of it especially has to do with young critics and young movie reporters. And I know we're pretty young. I know I'm young. But I like to not categorize myself as one of like the cynical fucking millennial assholes out there that I think are kind of the root of a lot of these issues. And unfortunately, people like us... 
we feed into the bigger category. We, we filter up to the Hollywood Reporters, the Entertainment Tonight's, you know, all these other bigger outlets that listen to us and carry our story because apparently that's what reporting has become in the media age. I know I'm kind of ranting on something else, but to me, that's, that's kind of my issue with this stuff in particular. And I think it kind of feeds into what you're saying, that the reason why we're all going to have this line, again, is because of the current state of people who are in charge or who i guess movie i don't i don't know what the fuck i'm saying i thought i did but it's no no i i, I think i kind of get it but um there is a line i think is what you're getting at if i'm understanding you correct there is a line um but it's up to us to make sure that the line doesn't get crossed uh simply for the purposes of identity politics exactly and the millennial culture has a fucked up way it definitely of- has a negative yeah, definitely has a, a negative impact on the ability for that to not occur. So exactly, enough. yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, well, I'm glad you, you can explain that in ten seconds. Then <laughs> <laughs> the three mi- minutes I wasted. So that is definitely my news, and uh, I guess oh, if I'm, I'm done with news, mine. No, oh, well. and you're done with okay. Well, I guess that concludes the news and brings us to. Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim, Matt and Tim have part one of their discussion about Netflix documentary series Five Came Back. This three-part series discusses the careers of John Ford, William Wyler, John Huston, Frank Capra, and George Stevens as they leave the glamour and glitz of Hollywood in order to cover World War II. This part one segment will focus on the actual documentary series. Part two will discuss the actual film work done when they came back. And now, discussions with Matt and Tim. All right. So, oh, even the we've got the beer crack going. I heard it. <laughs> Sit tight, folks. <laughs> so eloquently put. This time we're going to be talking about just the documentary. We'll be talking about the work that they did uh, when they came back. And maybe even a little bit of the work that they did during the war for part two of this discussion. But basically the idea is really just kind of get to the nitty gritty of the series. And the series is basically in three parts. The first part is kind of everything leading up to them getting into the war and what they were, you know, hoping to achieve. And then of course, part two is the stuff that actually happened while they were there and how they served um, and, and their struggles and triumphs and failures. And then part three, of course, is, when they physically come back and how they basically kind of how they reconnoiter with what they see as they come back into the world. They also reconcile that with where they've been and what they've been doing. Stop thinking and follow me, cried Hitler. I will make you masters of the world. A lot of people laughed. He was a clown. But they weren't so evil. It was a comedy. In the early years of Hitler's rise, moviegoing had become an essential part of American culture. But Americans did not realize the extent of the threat Hitler posed. He understood cinema could be put in the service of propaganda. Americans realized we can't win this war. These guys are going to beat us. 
Western civilization was at stake, and we're going to fight until we win. Five filmmakers wanted to respond as so many millions of men and women responded. They chose to serve. These documentaries were powerful for American audiences. The footage proved that the enormity of the task was worth it. We had an enormous story to tell. The greatest heroes, the greatest villains on the world stage. This was real filmmaking. This is the people's war. It is our war. And yet, coming out of it, each one made their greatest film. I believe a film should have something to say. I think it should make people think and feel long after they've left the theater. Nothing could prepare anyone for the intensity of the conflict. These filmmakers changed the world. So, Tim, lead us. Okay, so Five came back, released on Netflix late March 2017, and it's based on a book written by Mark Harris of the same name, Five Came Back, and that came out in 2014. The main difference right off the bat between the book and the documentary is that the book is a, I, I don't know if it's necessarily a straightforward account would be a good way to describe it, but it's all coming from Mark Harris, the author, and his research. But in this documentary, you have five modern-day directors, Francis Ford Coppola, Guillermo del Toro, Paul Greengrass, Lawrence Kasdan, and Steven Spielberg, who each take turns pretty much discussing one particular director that they are fond of. Francis Ford Coppola handles John Huston, Del Toro, Frank Capra, Greengrass, John Ford, Lawrence Kasdan, George Stevens, and Steven Spielberg does William Wyler. And, of course, it's not like, you know, one director talks for an exorbitant period of time and then the next one, but all these interviews or all of these talking points or talking heads, I guess, are edited together. That is, I think, one of the main differences. And also, they take more liberties, I think, in the documentary to go off on tangents, I guess, and discuss certain aspects that the book did not discuss, maybe in full detail, or even maybe didn't even touch on. But I did read a chunk of the book, and it's absolutely fascinating, and it does go into so much more detail. So it's definitely a must-read. So I think what we're going to do, Matt, is um, I went back and rewatched the entire series last night and today at lunch, <laughs> and I took extensive notes. And instead of going through all of my notes, because I know, Matt, you have stuff you want to say as well, I will cover the first episode, the highlights of the first episode, just so our favorite listeners can get a taste of what Five Came Back is all about. And then once I finish, then Matt, you chime in, and then let's uh, let's talk about what we liked or didn't like about the series, or what surprised us, even, since we're both historical and movie buffs. But again, here are some highlights from the first episode. So when it begins, all five of these directors are working in Hollywood. Some of them are more popular than the others, believe it or not. George Stevens at the time, uh, as well as John Ford, were probably the biggest directors. Uh, Frank Capra was doing incredibly well for himself. William Wyler was doing incredibly well for himself. While John Huston was an up-and-coming star at the time. In fact, John Huston began as a writer. 
But Hollywood at the time was very interesting. I mean, war was beginning. But of course, America didn't have any involvement in it yet. Hollywood paid no attention to the rise of Adolf Hitler and his power, his rise to power, and his condoning of hatred. Hollywood paid no attention to this despite having this medium in place in which they could have exploited it. American citizens received their visual news during the 30s and the 40s at the movies in the form of newsreels. They would show these newsreels in between the cartoon and the main feature. But these five directors knew that cinema had become an essential aspect of American culture, of the American culture, and it would be used as a tool or even as a weapon of change when they go off to make these documentaries overseas. And these five directors had no idea that the footage that they would bring back over the course of the next four or five years would change forever the way people look at war. And among the very first in Hollywood to acknowledge Hitler's rise and the threat he could impose on democracy was, in fact, John Ford and the lesser-known John Huston at the time. But John Ford, he, of course, was known for making stagecoach early westerns. He was the one that set the standard for the talkie westerns. He made The Grapes of Wrath in The Long Voyage Home in 1940. Both films deliberately express reality and addressed the war. And Ford might have been a heavy drinker, but he was also a big thinker, and he noticed that, quote, noticed the world collapsing around him, especially overseas. That's what Paul Greengrass says. Deeply affected by the trouble brewing overseas, he recruited editors, soundmen, cameramen, and other crew, and created this field photo group which is the official photographic naval unit, which was eventually designated as an official part of the Naval Reserve. And this group, this uh, field photo group, they'd meet on the studio lot on certain days where they'd run these drills and discuss photo and what was happening in the war and how possibly the government could utilize it. And John Huston, again, little lesser known at this time, John Huston was labeled as one of the bad boys of Hollywood before the war, but was an obviously talented screenwriter. He had this brilliant mind for conceptualization, which made for creating great stories and characters. And with the help from William Wyler, he did become a director himself, because mainly he didn't want others rewriting his own screenplays. Sergeant York, a film that Houston helped write, became the highest-grossing film of 1941. It told the story about a conscientious objector during World War I who ended up becoming a, a war hero. The film and its success upset the isolationists in politics, calling Hollywood out for colluding with FDR to make propaganda. Studio execs had to testify before Congress because of this, proving instead that they were only showing the world as it is. And then we have William Wyler, born Jewish in Mulhouse, Alsace. I think it's Alsace, A-L-S-A-C-E, Alsace, maybe. Wyler was known for being a perfectionist, earning the nickname 40 Take Willie, and known for being fully committed to his religion and culture. He had an idea of what Hitler would do to the Jews in Europe at the time. And Miss Miniver, a film about a family in Britain struggling with the complexities 
brought on by the opening months of World War II, told a story of, quote, solidarity and strength, end quote, said Spielberg in the documentary. Weiler knew that he could make an impact by telling a story about the war. In doing this, he wanted to depict the one Nazi soldier in the film as the absolute worst Nazi soldier. But a studio exec by the name of Louis B. Mayer didn't want Miss Miniver depicted as a hate picture by singling out that one Nazi. But Weiler wanted that character to be a depiction of what was actually happening, something monstrous and full of hate. And Pearl Harbor happened during the filming, changing Louis B. Mayer's position and allowing the portrayal of a heinous Nazi. And at the time, Weiler was aware that Miss Miniver could make a substantial contribution to the war effort and to the consciousness of the time. And the next director, George Stevens, he was clueless at first about what was going on. He was very successful at making these lighthearted comedies and elegant musicals. Paths of Glory was on his radar. The type of film in which he wanted to expand his horizons. One in which he'd be able to experience the making of a different type of film. One that would be grounded in reality. The studio execs and producers thought Paths of Glory was an anti-war film, so Stevens was not able to make it. Instead, he made a pro-war film called Gunga Din, which glorified war. And a little bit later, you'll hear about this happening more so when, when America gets involved in the war. And then finally, we have Frank Capra, who won his third Oscar before USA entered the war. Being an immigrant from Italy and the subject of slurs and stereotypes, he too spoke out against Hitler. He believed in the USA being the land of the free and available to everyone. He expressed this in his films. And Capra wasn't political, but he did believe in humanity. Now, overseas, this is kind of when John Ford, for example, decided that he wanted to go and do something about it. Granted, Frank Capra was one of the first ones to actually go over there. But in the documentary itself, they focus first on, on John Ford. John Ford was sent out to shoot a Japanese attack on Midway Island, where he wanted to be in the middle, the thick of where the action is taking place, in order to capture it in the most natural and naked state. His footage made reality very cinematic. His shooting, at least, wasn't calculated or polished during these attacks. But his shooting was accidental, making it more dramatic. It was also distressed. There was trouble keeping the frame, and there were plenty of missed opportunities. Many of these have become techniques that we've seen in modern-day cinema. Oddly enough, Paul Greengrass, who is one of the guys talking about John Ford, I mean, if you watch his, uh, if you watch his um, Jason Bourne movies, I mean, fuck, man, shit's not always in the frame because the camera's moving so much. And if you go back and watch Battle of Midway, you see a lot of that in there because he wanted to be in the thick of it, sure as shit, in the, right in the middle of this battle. And the Battle of Midway, believe it or not, was shown in color in the U.S. and became the very first film to show an American victory. He made a documentary, quote, with a storyteller's eye, end quote, says Greengrass, using close-ups of the soldiers to make the film more personal and to really hit home. And after Pearl Harbor, 
George Stevens, he didn't want to create any more of these lighthearted entertainment fluff pieces that he was known for. And if he continued to produce those kinds of films, he felt they would only be a distraction from what was more important. I mean, a lot of directors did not feel this way. They felt that we should keep people going to see lighthearted entertainment because there is a war going, when really, that maybe should not always be the case. Frank Capra left to make films for the new recruits right after Pearl Harbor. These films that would be designed to show the necessities of wearing a uniform and fighting for your country. It was important for these young, naive men with no war experience to believe in the cause. This was literally his first time having any experience with a documentary. In fact, before this, he's never even seen a documentary before. These films would become a series of seven documentaries called Why We Fight. And Capra initially had a difficult time trying to figure out how to approach the series of Why We Fight films, wanting to top Hitler's frightening Nazi propaganda films. Amongst the threats of total world domination and annihilation, Hitler and Mussolini, though being real villains, looked like comedic, larger-than-life caricatures. Capra ended up making Prelude to War, the first part of the Why We Fight series, which he used a lot of that frightening Nazi propaganda footage with the intention of using their own warmongering footage to rile up the U.S. troops. And it did rile them up. And Capra showed, quote, how important of a weapon thought is. Del Toro. Guillermo Del Toro said that. That sums up the first 55 minutes of this documentary, giving you an idea of what they were walking into this with. And that was not a lot. Nobody was really prepared for this because these were filmmakers without any experience making propaganda films, yet they were being funded by a government without any experience making movies. So nobody knew what was the right thing to do. And I think something that is uh, also... I don't necessarily want to say it's glossed over, but it's also, I think, interesting that they don't go into a lot of detail about it, is you've got someone like uh, Capra, okay, who is literally Sicilian, okay, and um, Sicilians were not exactly the most favorable of... um, minorities, if you will, uh, even amongst Italians in America at that time. Um, and yet this is, this is a guy who is like so fucking American to his, to his core, um, that he, that his first thought is again, like Tim mentioned, you know, the whole, why we fight, um, uh, thing with the prelude to war and all that kind of stuff. It, that that's his goal is he knows and understands the ideals that make America great. That that is why we uh, need to be where we are and and how we have to make it so important that everybody understand um, what it is we're fighting against so that we can celebrate the things that are worth fighting for to to make America great. At the same time, people would look down on him just because he's not american enough and um and, and and they and like i say they don't really gloss 
over it per se, but uh, because they use that as kind of an introduction that that plays a big part in the second part of the film uh, or in, in part two of the series, because they do go into great detail about um, the amount of racism that was done because they, there's there's um, anti-Japanese propaganda that they talk about. Um, and, and yet and then, of course, we're trying to juxtapose that with uh concentration camps here in the united states for japanese americans uh and like literally people who have never been to japan they were born raised and they've lived their lives as americans and yet they're being forced to move away and if you look at the kind of stuff that we uh made fun of with japs and stuff um like with breakfast at tiffany's you can even see it in breakfast at tiffany's with uh, mickey rooney these are the stereotypes that were put into place in World War II. Um, and yet, uh, we're asked to, you know, hey, you should fight for us. Um, and yet, and at the same time, even like with Weiler, um, you know, he, he refuses to make the recruiting film for black soldiers because of the amount of racism that he, that he comes across. Um, I mean, there's just so much of that that's in play. And that's why I don't say they necessarily, they don't really go into Capra per se, um, but they use that as kind of a springboard to talk about the racism and stuff. That was just absolutely rampant in America, despite um, what we, despite our, our better notions of... America as the savior of all things. Um, and, and it's, and, and yet, interestingly enough, we also get to see the glimmers of the better side of what makes America great, of the truly amazing part about how you can have such racism, such hate, such deep-seated misgivings and misunderstandings about culture. And yet there are people who are strong enough to say, no, this is not, this will not stand. And they use their influence to create good uh, cinema and, and something that you can look back on and be proud of, especially for people of color. Um, so, I mean, there's just this really great and compelling juxtaposition that happens. And that's something that I really, really, really like about the second episode in the series. Uh, because you also get to see a lot of the really cool stuff that, um, that, 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 uh, do you have it in your notes, Tim? The, the, the the animation stuff like when they were doing the training for the GIs and stuff with all the oh yeah the that guys. Capra that Capra did yeah, yeah he ended up the, doing with the idiot guy you yeah know, he was working screwed. with uh, Mel Blanc and Warner Brothers yeah um I can't think of his was it like Sergeant something Sergeant Snafu Private Snap Private Snafu Private Snafu yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I think that sounds about right which I think is great because which you he cannot find about... on Netflix I'm sure. <laughs> oh no, no, probably not. But what's so great about that is that you, you also get to see the realities of life. Everybody always sees this whitewashed and literally whitewashed Hollywood and stuff. Um, in terms of performance, in terms of what you would see, even going into the fifties with like Leave It to Beaver and stuff like that. Um, and yet 
the reality of it was people were fucking, people were cursing, people were smoking and drinking and doing everything. The whole private snafu thing. That is situation normal, all fucked up. That is what snafu means. And so you have this, um, so you actually get to see the, the reality of the world and the grit. And it's oftentimes really quite funny. And it's like, wow, there was humor back then. And it wasn't all, gee, shucks, golly, willikers. There was actual, you know, humor. Things that we would have found that we could say would be sophisticated, um, even today. And, I, I mean, I really think the heart and soul of what makes that series great is found in episode two. Yeah, I think even Disney was trying to even, oh uh, yeah, like like trying to with, get with it on Disney that with also. the with Donald fighting the Germans and everything like that. Yeah. Well, well, it's like they were trying to. I think they were trying to get a, a, an animation company, and like so, all these other animation companies were fighting to work with Capra on these. Uh, on the snafu cartoons or something like even dr seuss what was the uh what's his real name because he even worked on this stuff oh, didn't theodore, he? yeah theodore geisel geisel yeah and in fact i remember a couple of years or a year or two ago i'm sure you must have seen this on on facebook that it was released that back in the 40s theodore geisel did all these really racist and, and horrible stereotype animations and a lot of it was during this and in mm-hmm. fact, in these in the like these animations, like what Matt was mentioning, I mean, they do dehumanize the Japanese culture with the Japanese stereotypes more so than the Nazis. Because with the Nazis, you just make them into like dim-witted assholes, and that's really nothing compared to what they did with the the Japanese culture. Agreed. And they also do point out that they wanted to make sure that while they needed to make they needed to make the Germans out to be the enemy that they still had to keep them human you needed you needed to be angry you needed to want to fight them but you needed to understand that at the end of the day after we win we have to be able to reestablish and it's something that they did not do for the japanese and there's a real play that's happening back and forth there. And again, all of that stuff plays into the Japanese internment camps as well. So, I don't know, there's just really, really cool stuff that I found that was, um, that I think for me made the, the second part of the series, uh, the, the best. Um, because, and I don't know, is there anything else you wanted to add about the second, uh, for combat zones before we not, shift not- into the third one? Yeah, I mean, I think really the only thing I want to add is that I think it, it was in the second episode when I started to question, like, like I'm kind of wondering how much of their work was actually honest. These directors' work were were, were honest. I mean, I, I feel pretty confident in saying that out of all these directors, William Wyler was the most honest and the most straightforward director because I think really he was probably the nicest guy because even... Um, I think Frank Capra had a soft spot for Mussolini, and I think John Ford was anti-Semitic even, and this documentary touches nothing on either of those things. I, I guess, again, like what I was kind of wondering is like how much of their stuff is honest, because you hear about John Huston restaging these huge, like the, like the liberation of these towns, you know, and the really truthful, honest thing that they have at present in these, in in, in his documentary, I forget, what the was it Aleutians? The liberation of Alusha. Uh, I forget yeah, the Aleutian Islands or whatever. Yeah, the, yeah. yeah. It, are are all the dead bodies? Are all the dead soldiers that were there when they showed up? But he had to completely restage it 
with the backing of the military or the army because he had the equipment. I mean, you watch it and it's absolutely amazing. He had it down packed right up to the freaking choreography of the soldiers walking past the camera and like glancing at the camera a little bit like you would do in a very candid way. So I think, I mean, there are a lot of kind of little tiny stories like that, especially from Ford and especially from Houston that kind of just made me question like in some way, doesn't it make it dishonest? more so, and and maybe unpatriotic because of how honest that they were trying to be. You know what I mean? Like, I understand that they were trying to do it as a, as a job, but then again, they weren't being absolutely forced to do this either, if that makes sense. Well, I don't... Okay, and and they do touch on that, but I would say that, that at the end of the day, we, 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 we work on the assumption that, especially for its time, the ends justified the means. Um... I think it's important that we recognize that the staging occurred and that we um, explain that it was there and why it was there. Um, but I also think that the impact of that is undeniable. And it really carried the day to help continue the war effort. And in a certain respects, um, from a more realistic standpoint, even even though it's still, strictly speaking, it's propaganda, but from a more realistic standpoint, gave people um the the gave people kind of like the virtue of what these soldiers actually do. Um something that couldn't be done in a newsreel, something that couldn't be done in the in the Hollywood movies of the day. So I, I don't disagree that there that 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 they should have been more honest about it then, but you know, it's like they say, you can't argue with the results. So right. I'm glad I'm glad that we know now, um, and I'm glad that they explain it now. But at the end, of, at, you know, I, I would say that it worked, so the ends justified the means in that regard. But um, and then of course, so. Kind of as we quickly <laughs> move into the third uh, segment, which of course is the price of victory. This is basically kind of covering as the as the directors come back to Hollywood and deal with um, the things they come back. Y'all, you, you know, you have to. Uh, they talk about how Ford uh, went on a drinking bender after D Day. Literally disappeared, like nobody knew where he was. He was more or less drummed out because of that. Um, Stevens is the one who kind of comes in and realizes what exactly was going on um, with concentration camps and says, fuck propaganda. We are now, you know, this is, this is literally documenting crimes against humanity. And so um, that becomes the importance of the day. Uh, And, and, also, even down to Houston actually recognizing PTSD, they didn't know what that was back then. Um, the, and he makes the film Let There Be Light, which really shines a light on that. Um, but at the same time, it's then smothered. Um, but we also see the first films from the people who come back, like Capra's It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I think, uh, you, you know... Uh, like you've got uh, they were expendable uh, the best years of our lives from William Wyler 
uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, all of these kinds of films that came back. Even uh, Shane, I think, uh, later on is uh, kind of a product of that, uh, of of what they saw back in those days. Uh, yeah, that's a George Stevens movie uh, from 1953. And even then, you see exactly, you, you can still see what happens as a result of the things that happened in World War II that play out in movies like Shane that don't just touch on immediately what happened when they came back, but literally follow these men for the rest of their careers. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's touching. It, it, it is. It's really touching. And it, and it goes to show that patriotism has a cost as well as a glory. And no one can decide which is greater. No one can decide that for you. You either accept the glory at its cost, or you refuse the glory because of its cost. And in that regard, it was different for each of these men. And I don't think that, I don't think that's a negative in any way, shape, or form. And I think that they captured, they, they truly captured everything that is great about America. But, also simultaneously the cost of that greatness is understanding the tremendous failings we had and some and 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 to and to a certain degree still have as a people but that these men still accepted the greatness at its cost and that is that is all i have to say Folks, just watch it. It's uh, <laughs> it's not worth listening to a super in-depth, complete review of all these. That's only a taste of it. There is so much more for you to relish in. I, I'm glad we did this. It's a great documentary, and it's definitely one that you're going to want to watch multiple times. And thus concludes part one of our Masterpiece Discussions on... The Netflix documentary series Five Came Back with Matt and Tim. Next week will be part two of the Masterpiece Discussions, where we will discuss the following films from the five who came back. John Ford's They Were Expendable, Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life, William Wyler's The Best Years of Our Lives, John Huston's The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, and George Stevens' The Diary of Anne Frank. If they decide to come back. And that concludes Discussions with Matt and Tim. Uh, Alright, yes, thank you again. So uh, we will be doing that, uh, although... I might just sneak in a little talk about uh, Shane, since Shane is 1953 and Diary of Anne Frank is 1959, unless it was 1949. Is Diary of Anne Frank 1949?
No, I think I thought it was 1959. Yep, yep, yep. You're right. You're right. You're right. Diary of Anne Frank. Yep. All right. Well, then I guess let's very quickly jump into the movies. <laughs> of course is wonder woman 2017's wonder woman direct of course as we noted by patty jenkins uh stars gal gadot chris pine robin wright danny houston david thulis connie nielsen and elena anaya diana fighting does not make you a hero what if i promise to be careful just a shield, then, Diana. No sharp edges. Be careful of mankind, Diana. They do not deserve you. You've told me this story. What is this place? Who are you people? We are the bridge to a greater understanding. Right. What is your mission? Well, here's the thing. You are in more danger than you think. The boys in the trenches called her Dr. Poison. Millions would die. The war would never end. I'm going, Mother. If you choose to leave, you may never return. Who will I be if I stay? To the war. Well, technically the war is that way, but we got to go this way first. How can a woman fight in this? Who is this young woman? She's my... um... Diana, Princess of the Prince, Diana Prince. If you believe that this war should stop, help me stop it right now. You will soon find out. Basically, it's the origin story, right, of Wonder Woman, which takes place actually during World War One. You know, Wonder Woman, Diana, is uh, the daughter of the, the queen of the Amazons, and uh, she's on Themyscira, uh, um, hidden island. Basically, they're there to eventually take down the god of war, Ares, and, uh, yeah, Diana... Uh, it, they're kind of living in this bubble because the idea being that if they can protect Diana um, and protect the island, then, you know, they, they can hold off trying to uh, bring the God of War, bring Ares back. Um, and this, of course, is messed up when Chris Pine shows up on the island. Now, um, and then, of course, you know, like we always like to say, shenanigans ensue now this movie is a really good movie okay um it falls short for me of of really liked it and here's why um i think that this movie was just so well done in the pacing department and really truly well done in terms of bringing uh, of bringing to life characters in a setting that would be tired and played out, but because they match their setting so well, feel genuine. If you take a character who's as wide-eyed and, and idealistic as uh, Gal Gadot's Diana is um, against today's backdrop, it would look stupid. But when you think about it against the backdrop of World War One, with the way people behaved back then, um, and and how proprietary uh, behavior was the norm, 
you see how someone who would be raised like Diana would both would both fit in and stick out and yet work on that backdrop. Um, compared against someone like Chris Pine's character, uh, who's, who's plays Steve Trevor, who, who's a, you know, the American spy working for British intelligence. Um, and, and so you kind of see how they, how that would work. And yet at the same time, someone who has seen so much unbelievable devastation and has seen the world literally fall apart, you could see how, um, in in any other scenario, oh yeah, sure, I can totally just buy into Amazonian women on a magical island in the middle of the ocean. It would be stupid, but because they are genuine characters, really and truly working against an actual backdrop that makes sense for what's happening in the story, everything works. Something else that really, really works with this film that I applaud more than anything else is the balance between storytelling and action. Action never happens in this movie for the sake of action. The action is actually part of the story and is implemented damn near flawlessly. And now we come to what I don't like about this movie two things that really, really hurt this movie. Despite the fact that the story is told so well and the characterizations are, again, genuine against this backdrop, it is so fucking predictable that I I literally had everything figured out about 25 minutes into the movie and was completely not surprised to watch it play out exactly like it was going to. Um... I thought, even for me, thought there was a little bit of needless double entendres and needless sexiness in the movie, especially with naked Chris Pine in the pool. Didn't, you know, like, I get it. Hey, eye candy needs to go all the way around. Let's spread it out and let's have some fun. Fine. But at the same time, it's like, really? And finally, finally, as much as I thought the action was was executed well... The special effects were not. Um, I was just, I, I was not pleased. I was not convinced um, in any way, shape, or form when it came to the special effects. Even when we're dealing with godlike magnitude, just wasn't working for me at all. So at the end of the day, I give this 3.75 out of 5. There are some very well executed things in here. Excellent story. Uh, great characterizations, except for the fact that it's too predictable and terrible special effects. Bring us home, Tim. Well, I mean, between the two of us, the total will be four. That'll be the SLS cast rating. Yes, it will. I I, I had already plugged in someone's Facebook score. <laughs> so, yeah, four. I give it a 4.25 out of five. I don't really have too much to say about this movie, other than that I thoroughly enjoyed it. I went and saw the 9 a.m. 3D IMAX screening on Saturday morning. I'm sure glad I did because the audience was fun. It was just a good time. The stuff that I was annoyed with or typical things I get annoyed with with uh, some of these DC action movies, the stuff I get annoyed with seems like they'd be easy fixes and you'd think somebody in the production team would have been annoyed with it that they would have maybe tweaked it in some way. Like the 
theme song for Wonder Woman, that's that guitar riff or whatever. I fucking hate it. Especially when the scene when she steps up into no man's land and that's when you hear that riff for the first time. And this is maybe halfway through the movie. I think maybe right before halfway through the movie. It's so out of place since they're in world war one, you know, and then she's doing that walking through no man's land, you know, super slow motion. And the special effects like Matt were saying weren't really that great. And it was a little too hokey, People did like it. I guess it was empowering in some certain way. But from a movie-making aspect, it just wasn't executed all that great. I think they could have taken a different avenue to have introduced that power feeling, you know, when she's walking, you know, slow motion. Ooh, one bullet. Ding! With my super cuffs. Ding! With my other super cuff. And then the fight ensues with a ring with a crazy, dumb guitar riff. Uh, they should have maybe set that up sooner so that they could have done something else with that moment. I, I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with No Man's Land and she's a lady and she's able to walk across. I don't know. Um, if that's the case, which is very much possibly the case because I think a lot of people are looking into it. I'm just really hoping people are looking into that way too much. Kind of like how maybe I could be possibly looking into this one aspect too much fully aware of that could be a possibility. And then I think the other main thing that bugged me the most, I'm not going to spoil it, but there is a death at the end of the movie and it makes me question which direction they'll take the sequel. I, I, I would love for it to take place in the 1930s, late 1930s, you know, in the, in the 20s, 30s with the same people, including the person that that died because I thought they were a very strong character and the chemistry was really good, so I I just don't know what's going to happen. Then again, you don't know if they could be dead fully or not. I You know, who, who knows? But it just makes me question things. Like, I, I just hope they're not going to shove the uniqueness, which I thought the setting and the idea of when it took place and, and what they played around with and what they established was so unique. They They have this stuff established. I just wish they'd build upon this world that they created and not go and create a whole different, you know, a whole new one. But I'll give them the benefit of the doubt because this is, again, a 4.25 out of 5 movie. Very entertaining. Yeah, just go check it out if you haven't already. Do it. Right on, right on. All right, well, that concludes this week's movie. Next week's movie, due to all of the uh, additional movies we're going to be covering in our discussion segment, we are only going to have one primary flick that we're going to be rating next week, and that movie will be 2017's latest incarnation, The Mummy. So that's what's up. All right, and without further ado, I think it's time for the spiel, is it not, sir? Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast. You can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter by following at NitTwit12345. You can, of course, climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. Don't forget, you can, of course, go to follow us and <laughs> favorite us uh, uh, on iTunes and, of course, uh, favorite us on Stitcher Radio and track us down on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, though, 
This, of course, is Matt saying that thanks to David Thewlis, I get to say this. I keep myself content by doing lots of different stuff and make sure that my next role is completely different to the last. I just enjoy the versatility of it, the challenge of doing lots of different things. It keeps the job interesting. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>